Let me invite you to uh, turn in your copies of God's Word to the book of Matthew. We're going to, in light of July the 4th, going to set aside Hebrews and look at something else. But um, um, as far as Gigi is concerned, which uh, some of you know is the Growth and Grace Institute that has three different levels to it, and we're about to wrap up level one uh, this coming Saturday. And the subject, as you saw, was how to parent. Guys, um, um, I want to say please don't come. Um, but I, I, um, there is, there is some, some stimulation for you there, at least I hope. But this is complex, as you well know. And um, none of us have all the answers when it comes to parenting. And I sure don't. But I would love to be with you and maybe offer a little bit of help as we try to um, sort some of this challenge out about how to raise kids in a, in a godly way. Hey, uh, before I read the text, people, you know, I, I get this question two or three times, I don't know, a month. Why do you stand out there and not behind the pulpit? Well, let me tell you why I'm standing behind the pulpit this morning. There's a fan and it is hot, and um, all these layers of clothes. Um, my wife even told me I could take off my coat, but, oh! I mean, what would my Presbyterian friends think if I were to take off my coat? So I'm back here because there's a fan right there, and um, it should help. You follow now as I read a very famous passage of Scripture. It's taken out of, a section out of the Sermon on the Mount. I think most of you know that the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, five, six, and seven of the book of Matthew. It's Jesus' first sermon. It's the beginning of his ministry. It's considered kind of the charter of this new thing that he's doing, um, launching the kingdom of God. So this, this, is, um, this is, all of it is important stuff, and yeah, this takes on importance all of its own. So you follow as I read, beginning at verse 13. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words, these endure forever. Guys, did you happen to notice um, in the bulletin the title for my sermon this morning? Dystopia? One word, just dystopia, did you see it? Have you ever heard that word before? Do you know what it means? Well, I bet you could guess. Um, it's the opposite of utopia. I mean, you've, you've heard of utopia. Dystopia is just the antithesis of utopia, which, by the way, we were supposed to be enjoying long before now. Utopia? At least that's what they told us. But, but it seems to some of us, that things are more dystopic than they are utopic. Uh, What happened? What happened? 
Well, let me offer you at least one possible explanation of what happened. Guys, when the, when the 20th century opened, now the 20th century, for those of you who don't, that's the 1900s, okay? When the 20th century opened, um, Charles Darwin, the father of evolution, uh, his great work, uh, The Origin of the Species, uh, had, been out, had been around about 50 years of, by then. I think it was published in 1852. And it had taken firm root in um, not only the, the hard sciences, but the, the pseudosciences as well. Things like biology, but also uh, philosophy and psychology had been influenced greatly by Darwin's ideas. And um, from that, those disciplines came um, a great deal of uh, promoted um, optimism about the future. Uh, things are, you know, just moving in this great direction and, and um, uh, things are getting better. Well, and, and, and in, that, in that mindset came a sentence. It's, it's all reflected in, in this sentence, okay? Uh, maybe you've heard this before. Every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. That originated with a French psychiatrist who had developed a, mean, a, a, psycho, a method of psychotherapy uh, in which the patients were to repeat over and over again, every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. That was the spirit of the age. Um, and of course, that method of psychotherapy was based on Darwin's premise that the fittest survived. So uh, we're getting fitter and fitter, and thus better and better, um, at least according to evolutionary psychology. So there was widespread optimism. Utopia was just around the corner. And then World War I erupted. Nasty little setback with its uh, smell of mustard gas hovering over the battlefield. 16 million people killed. Seven million of them were civilians. Well, that looked a whole lot more like dystopia than utopia. But, but, um, but ah, they said um, that was just an anomaly. It was a hiccup, um, an exception. I mean, we're going to... We're going to get back on track real soon. Uh, don't dismay. Don't give up your optimism. And then about 10 years after that war was settled, the crash of 29, the Great Depression, scenes of people jumping out of windows of tall buildings. And then about 10 years after that, World War II. Um, with the... Uh, death camps, barbarity, man to man, the, the ovens of Auschwitz, oops, um, uh, it, it looks a whole lot more like dystopia. And now today, in the Middle East, we have a, uh, a group of people, uh, a group of savages, ISIS, 
that are cutting people's heads off or um, burning them alive in cages or dropping them in vats of acid. And if that weren't bad enough, they're, they're, they're filming it all and then uploading it to YouTube so that we can all enjoy it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's dystopia, not utopia. Uh, it, it, it's, it prompted one New York Times edit, or columnist to write, um, his name was uh, Roger Cohen. Roger Cohen wrote that we're living in a, in a time of unraveling. It feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like we're living in a time of unraveling. Wait, 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 wait just a minute. I, I thought we were told that uh, every day and in every way, we are getting better and better. Where did utopia go? Winston Churchill said, the power of man has grown in every sphere except over himself. <laughs> um, the world's expectation of the arrival of a global utopia, mm, all based on evolutionary philosophy, um, that hasn't worked out so well. The, the only optimism um, that is left now is thoroughly unscriptural. And not only that, it's also been falsified by history itself. One, one historian, um, Will Durant, I loved this quote. Will Durant said, the very excess of our present paganism may warrant some hope that it will not long endure. You know, he said, this is, I'm paraphrasing Will Durant. He said, and basically he's saying, things are so bad that it might just burn itself out. Arnold Toynbee, who was a British historian, said, civilizations commit suicide. And it seems like that's what's happening to, among us, doesn't it? At least to some of us. It's, it's dystopia. Now, now that I have introduced you to one D-Y-S word, dystopia, let me introduce you to another one. Dyspepsia. You know what dyspepsia is, don't you? It's heartburn. It's indigestion. And a lot of us look around our culture and it, it, there's just a spiritual indigestion. What in the world is going on? Guys, do you know the, the, most, the question that I get the most frequently these days? It's not, how do I grow in grace? Or what about this passage over here? Or could you tell me this about this theological? You know the, the, the most frequent question I get? Who do I vote for? <laughs> um, I, I don't know whether you keep up with this kind of stuff, but if, you're, if you like blogs... Um, and I'm not really good at it. I've, I've gotten better at it of late. But um, currently, the blogosphere is full of articles, good articles written by Christians who are just trying to sort some of this idiocy out. Um, there was an article three or four weeks ago about uh, the gospel for a time like this. Good article. There was one a couple of weeks ago about, um, it was entitled, Hold Your American Citizenship Loosely. 
And then last week, um, Al Mohler, some of you know the name Al Mohler, who is the president of a Southern Baptist Seminary, who's a good guy. Al Mohler wrote an article that was excellent about this character matter. Now, he said in his article, with which I am in abject agreement, that the two political candidates that are being offered to us are so flawed and have less of that commodity character than, than we've ever been offered, at least in my lifetime. Both of them. Uh, you know, it seems like both of them have taken a page out of Bill Clinton's playbook. You know, um, my, uh, uh, my private life in no way affects my public policy making. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how absurd that is? Absolutely absurd. You know, when you get back from Vegas, you bring you with you, with a little bit of Vegas, and far more scars. Guys, we're all wondering, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us are wondering, what's going on here? And this morning, what I have for you is my attempt, however meager, to put something solid underneath you. Um, to, to relieve some of the dyspepsia over the dystopia. <laughs> um, I, I feel in some ways that my sermon is, is, is more of a blog post than it is as a sermon. But in view of tomorrow, July the 4th, um, guys, here's, I, I want to offer you some things just to keep in mind. I want to remind you of some things that Jesus has said in an effort to comfort you, um, to, to help you make some sense out of the chaos by simply reminding you of a few things that Jesus said to us. Okay? So into this, this chaotic, unraveling, um, dystopic world, God speaks. He does several places in the, in the, in the scriptures, but this is, this is a big one. Um, it's, I mean, there's a lot more than this in the, in the New Testament than, than we can cover today. But he does say this, and Jesus says it, as I said, in the Sermon on the Mount, in this charter of, the, of this new deal he's bringing. So it's pretty important stuff. Um, it's a familiar passage. You've heard of it. In fact, this morning I was with a group of people praying, and, and one of the prayers mentioned that we're salt and light. Ah, well, that's where he is, right there uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5. Um, gang, um, the, the, what you're being given here is a description of the function of Christians in this godless place in which we find ourselves. Um, you are being told here, what is our relationship to that world that we simply cannot explain anymore? Well, into that haze socially and politically and, and, and spiritually Jesus has some things to say it's a brief passage and in it um, is contained or are contained three metaphors salt, 
light city. Three metaphors trying to help us understand what is our relationship to this world. Um, I, I can tell you this. My temptation was to take one of them and just run with it. Because you could. Any of the three. But I'm, I'm just going to try to speak briefly about all three of these metaphors contained in this brief passage. Um, I want you to notice something as we begin. Uh, just a couple of introductory, before we get to the metaphors themselves. Just a couple of introductory comments. I want you to notice that all three of them say, you are not do this. This is a sense of definition. This is not about instructions. We're going to get some instructions in the implications. But it's, it's, a, it's a statement of who we are. Now, gang, if this is what we are, then what are we being told about our world and our relationship to it through these metaphors. Um, gang, you are given three titles here, Salt, Light, and City. Um, titles not on account of what we know, but on account of what we are. Wherever there is faith in Christ, there is salt, there is light, and there is a city. Um, Jesus is telling us, ladies and gentlemen, what we are um, in this dystopic, unraveling culture in which we find ourselves, okay? Now, so a a good place to start, I think, is simply uh, the realization that the world sees who I am before it asks me what I know. Jesus starts by telling me what I am. So the world sees first who I am before it wonders what I believe. And the other thing that I would point out before we get to the metaphors is this. This is not said to the spiritually elite. It's not said to the, uh, the clergy or the trained or the degreed. It's said to the whole body of Christ, to all of us. Um, I am no more salt than you are. I am no more light than you are. You know, we're, uh, this is something spoken to all of us. Okay? So in general, that's what the the passage is about. What is to be my function and my relationship to a dystopic unraveling world? Here it is. First of all, we're told we are salt. Um... Guys, salt, particularly in this culture, was beneficial in a number of ways. Um, it was a culture without refrigeration, and so the, I think the first thing that salt functioned as, it functioned as a preservative. It was rubbed into meat to keep the, the meat from um, spoiling. Now, with that in mind, what does that tell us by way of implication about the world in which we find ourselves, in the world in which we live? Here's what it tells us. It says that the world is full of rot, (laughs) with which most of us could agree. It's full of rot. So salt's business is not to provide health. Salt's business is to delay putrefaction. Um, Gang, we cannot, or 
We cannot provide a cure, but we can prevent putrefaction, wholesale putrefaction. Now, there is a cure. It's just not the one that we could offer them what God has done as by way of the cure. But, but the role of salt is to hold back the, the, um, the advance of putrefaction. Gang, who would have ever dreamed that the President of the United States on May the 14th of, 19, of this year would rule that public bathrooms must be made available to the transgendered? I mean, who would have thought that? I mean, 10 years ago, five years ago. You know, if, if I were a woman, I would never use a public bathroom again. Um, oh, and by the way, this is just as an aside. Those of you who have had trouble uh, believing in the existence of a personal devil, <laughs> how about now? You know, my hero, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, the reason I believe in a personal devil is because I have to, because I have no other way of describing what's going on around me. Well, maybe now you understand what he means. I, don't, I can't understand this. I can't believe it. Who would have dreamed that that would have happened? <clears throat> We're living in a world that is moving towards lawlessness, towards dystopia. And in that world, we are supposed to be salt. Holding back the putrefaction. But there was another way that salt was used in this culture. It's still used this way. Not only was it um, a preservative, it was also used as a seasoning. That is, um, it, it provided a zing, a, a, a zest. To an, uh, I mean, Christians um, have a zest to an otherwise tasteless world. Um, you know, when I was a young boy, my mother used to make fudge. And um, um, there was not a whole lot of store-bought candy around the house, but we used to have fudge. I mean, she used to make fudge once a week, sometimes twice a week. And um, she made it so frequently that I can still remember the, uh, the recipe for fudge. It was uh, four tablespoons of Hershey's chocolate. It was two cups of sugar, a cup of milk, a teaspoon of vanilla, and a half a stick of butter that you beat in at the end, at the, at the last. And then there was one more. A pinch of salt. <laughs> and if you left that salt out of there, ladies and gentlemen, it, that stuff wasn't worth eating. And I never understood how a pinch of salt could make that much difference in a batch of fudge. Gang, um... Without Christianity, life is insipid. Um, it's dystopic. It's, it's unraveling. We Christians have a life worth living. It's got a zest to it. It's got a zing to it. And if we would, if we would be more honest about where that zing came from, then just maybe the non-Christian world would... Um, would develop a thirst for something that we have. So that's what we are. That's the first metaphor. The other one, or the second one, is that Christians are also light. Gang, um, I could take this in a number of, a number of directions. The, 
the light versus darkness motif is all throughout the Bible. I mean, it opens the Bible and it shuts the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, let there be light in a void and dark and uh, empty place. You go to the end of the book, Revelation 21, and uh, there is a city that has no sun, no moon, that God gives it light. There will be no darkness there. There will be no night there. And then in the middle of the book, Jesus in John 8 is claiming to be the light. I mean, it's, it's from the beginning through the middle all the way to the end. It's all over. I mean, it's light versus darkness uh, theme in the, in the scriptures. But suffice it to say simply this. The world is a very dark place. Um, something else I think with which we would all agree. But light dispels darkness. Christians do that with, without even opening their mouth. A, a godly life is a, is a stern rebuke of sin. I want to read you something, guys. I've read you this before, but I mean, to me, it is so blasted profound. I've really re- only read one of the verses. I'm going to read two verses out of John 3. Would you, would you listen? Again, Jesus is speaking, and, and he says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's the one I've read before. Um, people don't want light because they've got evil deeds, and they don't want to. But, but Jesus goes on, and he, he adds this. This is verse 20. That was verse 19. This is verse, listen to what he says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. We are hated without ever opening our mouths. Um, Because we're light. And guys, we became light, not because we were so morally upstanding, We became light by sovereign grace. God made us lights. And then he makes us to be lights to other men. Um, Our personal conversion operates, it operates immediately on people who are around us just because I've been brought to light. I mean, I... Guys, remember that little song that we used to teach our kids? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, guys, this text says that we are lights. It doesn't say, go become light. (laughs) It says, I am light. You know, Augustine said, quite famously that it's he's repeated over and over he said um, preach the gospel and if necessary use words we don't even have to open our mouth and um, darkness runs Um, and then the final metaphor of the text is that we are a city and and as I read it I hope you saw this that um, the city is being described as something prominent, something that can't be hidden. Um, and again, it's, it's prominent not for its own sake, but it's prominent for the sake of the world in which it's planted. 
Uh, We are to be seen. But just long enough, says verse 16, that men will um, see the light, but then turn and give glory to God for the light. But here's the point that I want you to recognize, guys. The city is a people. It's a community. It's the church. You can't be a city by yourself. There is no such thing as the city of one. So, you can't bring light into a dark world or you can't act as salt on a rotting world apart from community. The church. The church which is to be a counterculture for common good. That's what we are, is a counterculture for common good, guys. Now, let, let, me, let me close by making five applications, um, leaving you with five lessons, whatever you want to call them. Things that, again, I, I'm, I'm trying to comfort you um, in, a, in a world that seems that, that's so inexplicable at times. But um, here, here are five things that I think you can walk away from this text and take home with you. All right, number one, we exist for them. Guys, if we understand how we became Christians, that is sovereign grace, then the world would be pitied, not hated. And I got to tell you, guys, I, I, I struggle right here. When, when I see the government of our country taking a report on something that took place in Orlando and, um, and deleting the words Islam or Islamic terrorism or Allah, when, when I see that happen, I get furious. When, when I see the Attorney General of the United States meeting with the husband of a woman who is under investigation by the FBI, I don't know how to act. When I watch all of this behavior that is unfolding all around me, I tend to hate. Gang, grace is a sure remedy for world hating. When I remember that were it not for God's sovereign kindness in my life, I I would be doing the same things. The world is a sick and dying place and no one has medicine but us. We are in it, but not of it, but we are for it. Guys, um... Our very existence should make this world a better place. Gang, the the world is worth preserving. Otherwise, why salt it? But God did salt it with us. All of my ire, all of my fury, it's just wrong. We exist for them.
We're salt, we're light, we're a city. Secondly, in every group in which I find myself, I should stand out. I should stand out not because I'm obnoxious or judgmental or opinionated, but because I'm different. I make a different sound. You know, guys, if I, if I had two quarters and one was made from the modern alloys of which quarters are made today, and I had a, a, a real silver one that they haven't been around in 75 years, but quarters used to be made out of real silver. But if I had a real silver one and then a modern one made out of the alloys and I were to flip them both up and they were to land on a concrete surface, they would make different sounds. One would go thud and the other one would have a ring to it. I have been made different. I have been, I have been changed from the inside out by, by God's work of grace and regeneration and we ought to make a different sound in every group in which I find myself I ought to stand out and that standing out may be painful it may it it may produce things that you don't enjoy I get that but ladies and gentlemen I didn't make you salt I didn't make you light but God did and so we ought to be, we ought to stand out. Third, ladies and gentlemen, you need your church. And so does the world. Um, the more impotent the church, the more rot in the world. Folks, as the church goes, so goes the world. And, and I can tell you this with, with passion. Gang, the major encroachments of darkness on our, in this world are made possible by a sick church. If you want to curse something, curse the church who has lost her sense of identity and has forgotten that she's salt and she's light and she's a city that's not supposed to be hidden. Gang, you need your church. The world needs the church, but you need the church. You need your church individually, personally. Divorce yourself from the from from this city, this community. Let a crammed schedule keep you away. And then you watch how things begin to unravel. You watch as darkness begins to creep into your life. You need your church. And you need your church to be a church. Fourth, so how can we be salt and light? Well, we can avoid rot and we can live as light. In our marriages. Guys, um... Our marriages were supposed to be a haven in a hostile world. We ought to be pros at forgiveness, not divorce. You want to be salt and light? How about your marriage? How about your, your business dealings? Guys, are we crooks? Are we dishonest? 
How do, we, how do I treat my employees? How do I treat my subordinates? Do people like to work for me? I, I can be salt and light in my marriage, in my business, and I can be salt and light in, in our sacrificing for the poor. Guys, I'm going to say this again. It's not exactly what I said at the beginning, but I'm going to say this again. The world sees what we do long before the world asks what we know. We can sacrifice for the, for the poor. And here's the fifth, and I'm done. Gang, utopia is impossible here. Sin saw to that. Utopia can only be found in a place called heaven. And you can only get to heaven through faith in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. So if you live apart from Christ, your hope for utopia has been dashed, falsified by history itself, and all you are left with is dystopia. Come to Christ. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will comfort your people that you'll remind them of things that you've told us um, that will help correct our, our sin. Uh, Lord, I am, I am guilty, and I pray that you will forgive me. And I pray that um, somehow as we try to wrestle through who we are, not because um, we've come up with definitions, but because we've just read yours, um, would you remind us of our relationship to the world and our function within her. Lord, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would you, would you, um, would you cause them to see that they're, they're in a world that is spinning downward and the only way out is through grabbing hold of the free gift of eternal life offered us by Christ. Um, might men and women take it even today? We ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name.